Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Mulford, and this is Trium Connects, a new podcast for the Trium community. There's no more uncertainty today than there was a thousand years ago. It's just different. It's a different context. In this ever-changing world, a leader has to be able to, I don't want to call it hedging her bets, has to be able to say, we got this piece wrong, or time out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 5 of Triumph Connects. Thanks to everybody who's listening, and remember, if you like the podcast, give us a rating and or share the link. This episode is a conversation I had with Professor Randy White. For the people who have graduated from Trium, you'll know Randy as your leadership professor in the final module of the program. His sessions are always really well received, and I have thoroughly enjoyed my time to catch up with Randy to talk about some, I think, very interesting and important elements of leadership. Randy is the co-chair of the leadership stream, both in HEC's EMBA in Qatar and also for the Trium program. In addition, Randy has a very long association with the American Psychological Association, where he is currently the chair-elect of the council leadership team and a member of the board of directors. And finally, coming out later this month of October will be the new edition of a book by Philip Hodgson and Randy called Relax, It's Only Uncertainty, Lead the Way When the Way is Changing. A great leadership book with lots of applicable and practical steps to improve leadership in times of uncertainty. Randy and I start our conversation with the observation that companies, firms, organizations, perhaps even countries always feel, or let's say often feel, a very high level of dissatisfaction with the quality of their leadership. There's always plenty of demand for better leadership and why it is that we perceive there to be a low supply. We then go on to talk about both the quantity and quality of uncertainty in today's world and how that affects the challenges that leaders face. In particular, we talk about the competing demands of being fully transparent about a leader's level of uncertainty and appearing to be decisive. You know, Randy talks a lot about the power of the humble leader, and I must say that he is the perfect example of the power of the humble academic. His insights are profound, and yet he approaches each conversation, each student, each class with a humility that is refreshing. And with no further ado... Here is my conversation with Randy White. Randy White, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. It's really nice to be here. I'm honored. I'm honored to be asked. So, uh, fire away. Well, I tell you I'm what. I'm sure you're gonna you're gonna ask me things I have no clue what the answer uh, is. So. I, I don't believe that. You know, you've been teaching on Triumph for a super long time, and I can't imagine a more important topic kind of in our troubled times as leadership, and it comes up all the time. And And I'm really looking forward to our conversation because every conversation I have with you, I learn from you, and uh, I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks. That's a very nice compliment. So now that my best friend has introduced me, <laughs> what's your... What's, what's the question to stump me? Well, the, the first question to make us feel uh, old is, you know, I think between the two of us, we have more than 60 years of teaching experience of execs between us. And I am always struck by the fact that everywhere I go, there seems to be a really perceived high demand for good leadership. And there's this perception that we don't have enough, that there's a low supply and a high demand. And I just wonder, you know, I've thought about this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Why do you think there seems to be in companies or in general, this dissatisfaction level with the leadership that they have? Well, first, before I give you a direct answer, I want to say that carrying an American passport, a blue passport and traveling as I do and teaching in different countries and doing all these things for many years. The situation that we're in with the pandemic and with the proposed destruction of democracy in the United States 
and really some attacks on democracy in the West in particular, it's led me to do a lot of thinking, a lot of pondering on my long bike rides and when I'm at home. The pondering is, gosh, have, what's happened with our teaching? Why hasn't our teaching made a difference? I guess I, I got into this to make a difference. And it has made me scratch my head a bit and go, has all the teaching made a difference or not? I sometimes am fortunate enough to meet leaders that have been in our class later in their careers and they'll say things like, I remember your class or I remember something you said or you really made a difference or that's a big compliment to me and to my colleagues like Sandy and Lily and yourself and Roger and others, that we did make a difference, that we, for a moment in time, we said something or did something that resonated with, with someone who was either currently in a leadership position or was destined to take on a leadership role and there was something we did or said and it mattered. That's important. But what's more important when I see a variety of people that have been in our classes and I'll see them quoted in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the FT or the whatever is that they're trying to make a difference in their company or their country, their society, in, a, in an industry, in a, with a policy, whatever. The problem is that we're never satisfied with leaders and leadership. We're always evolving. We're always looking for the next. And there are times and places where we actually do see a blip where there is a leader who is clearly head and shoulders above and beyond. Um, recently with the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I'd be a fool to, to not acknowledge the, the things that she was able to accomplish as a lawyer, as a justice on the Supreme Court, but as a leader, a leader who had a set of values, who probably was not a perfect human being, but she stood for something. Mm. She created change in a society. She created change that we all look up to and that we want our followers, our children, the people who follow in our footsteps, the people inside organizations to live up to. Those people, those few people are, if you will, the high watermarks that we all aspire to, that we want to live up to. Mm. And that's not evenly distributed in, in throughout life. So I think our our struggle inside organizations is we continue to struggle to find a leader. I don't want to say Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but, or Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or with all his ups and downs. We, we want leaders who are those, who represent those high water marks. And those are very special people. Yeah. The, re the, the, the rest of us, Matt, are sort of the workaday leaders, and we're always aspiring. We're always trying to live up to that. I think that's right, and I, I appreciate your words on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I absolutely agree. I also feel great satisfaction when somebody says some of those warm words that, that you hear yeah. as well. Thanks. At the same time, I think to myself, you know, as you started the, the answer, we've been doing this a long time, and, and we're two foot soldiers in a mighty army of leadership <laughs> teachers. Yeah. And it may be that, you, like you said, maybe we're evolving that our evaluative kind of scoring is getting harder and harder. So people are doing better on the test of leadership all the time, but we just aren't satisfied. We want something better and better. And occasionally we get a blip of some superhuman or super leader that comes up and is able to make huge changes. But I kind of feel like an alternative argument is that leadership is kind of a natural scarcity and that maybe we can tweak around the edges, but that I guess, shouldn't we see 
an overall improvement in leadership through time, given all of the work that goes into leadership training? Who's to say, though, that's interesting the way you pose that. Who's to say we aren't seeing um, an overall improvement that the that the the capability of leaders is greater and greater and greater um, as we evolve? I, you know, I can't answer that question because I didn't live in 1792 or I didn't live in 1850. But, you know, I can go back and say, oh, there's this leader and there's that leader. And there are certain people who are six, six sigma. They're just so far sure. out on the curve and they inspire us. They inspire us to be better, to create better organizations, to be a better person, to at the same time, I have a fundamental belief that we are always aspiring. 30 years ago, since you've now dated us, when we would say something like, well, our research says leaders learn, grow, and change. I still remember being laughed out of the executive development classroom at a major university that starts with a B and ends with an E. And I still remember, it's actually been longer than 30 years. We were laughed out of the classroom, laughed. Ha ha, you guys are nuts. They thought our research was nuts. And they thought that what we had to say was nuts. But the evolution, not just of our work, but of a variety of people's work, whether we're gonna talk about good to great or first break all the rules or, uh, you know, name, uh, start naming leadership books in and around or uh, taking a look at various people, whether it's a Jack Welch or whether it's uh, whoever. Now, the, the notion of leaders learn, grow and change, leaders rise to the occasion, leaders, it's in, the, it's in our parlance, it's in our everyday speak, the notion of growth and change. Leaders born or made. Well, I love Tom Peters' response. He's met, never met a leader yet who wasn't born. Yeah. So the, the point that I would say, Matt, is I do believe we're evolving. I do believe we're into growth and change. I am drawing a line in the sand that I've never seen the notions of Western leadership under so much attack. Okay. I've never seen, in terms of the socio-political realm, in my lifetime, I never expected to see what I'm seeing, which is buffoons who are literally laughing at competent, humanistic, values-based leaders, laughing at them, making fun of them, um, uh, seeking to exploit their, their tendency to be humble, in fact, one of my, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna reach behind me. One of my latest reads that I went back to find is a fascinating article from 2015, Do Humble CEOs Matter? An Examination of CEO Humility and Firm Outcomes. Hmm. I'm taking a look at some of this stuff because I'm now believing, Matt, that I need to incorporate some of these messages about humility about values, about some of those things, even more into my teaching. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree and that in a way it's a good fight, but sometimes I wonder whether when we say we're developing leaders, whether it's, you know, this is a kind of being a basically good human, right? I mean, that, that's what, and so I, I, if we take, I'm not, I, I don't need to name any names, but we can think of an exact opposite style and that can be effective with many people, effective depending on how you define effective, but it can produce results. And so I sometimes wonder, and this is a kind of a long setup for the next question, but indulge me a little bit. You know, okay, you, sure. can, you can think of leadership, one way to think of it is along two dimensions. You know, one idea of a leadership is a leadership as the decider, right? I'm gonna lead by deciding what we should do. And then that's kind of change deciding. And then another is kind of a leader is somebody who makes change happen. So this is kind of the change maker. And a little thought experiment, and just to try to tease out these two things. So let's say that someone's empowered to make all the decisions of what we should do within an organization, but no one knows this person exists except for only one person, okay? The right. one responsible for executing all the decision makers' decisions. 
and this person has no power whatsoever to alter what's been decided. So of those two people, who is the leader? You know, the way I frame that in my head, and you may not mean it this way, the decider is the command and control sort of leader who says, I'm the technical expert. I know what to do and how to do it. Just do as I tell you. The change maker or the visionary is the one who paints an aspirational picture of what the future could be and says, I see us going to the promised land. I see us going here. I can inspire you to do this, but A, I lack the authority to, I can't command you to do this. I have to influence you to do this. Or B, I lack the technical expertise to be able to pull this off. Yeah. I, I, I guess I would argue there are times for deciders and there are time for change makers. And at least during my lifetime and in the kind of leadership that we've often taught over the last 30 or 35 years, we tend to see deciders in emergency situations and we tend to see deciders in situations where we need an answer right now. Yeah. But when we need commitment, when we need people's hearts and minds, when we need a belief, when we're down, when we're out resourced, when we lack something, we need somebody who inspires us, who paints a picture. And they are, I actually see some of those leaders as openly noting what they lack. But the biggest issue is I find the change makers truth tellers. And basically, I would tell you right now, we have an assault on the truth. And the change makers that we've often studied, that we've emulated, the leaders that we, we aspire, that, that many of our students aspire to be, are those who want to make change that no one's done before. Yeah. And that's inspirational. Yeah. I agree, you know, 100%. We're going to be radically agreeing with each other a lot today, I think. Let me go one step further. So, Remember, we have this thought experience. One person makes all the decisions, but we don't know about that person. All we know about is the change maker, this inspirational leader that you said that inspires us, right. that gets the change done. And secretly, right. there's this person. Now, let's say that suddenly everybody knows the existence of the decision maker. And then I, now, yeah, who do you think they, most people now, would see as the leader? What I see in small group exercises, what I see with competent people is if there's a decider and suddenly we know who she is, we know who he is, we suddenly turn our attention to that person and say, so tell us what the answer is. Yeah. So that I, person takes on all the responsibility. They sort of absolve us of having to participate. Uh, so you're beginning to see my notion of leadership is that a really effective leader creates a space where all the, the best of the, our best selves show up and we participate in this community that is driving towards a decision or driving towards a, a vision, driving towards something to better our community or our society, our system, our organization, mm -hmm. whatever. When we just have a decider, it's okay, Matt, make the decision, tell us what to do. Yeah. I think that's really an interesting observation because I think the locus of control in today's world seems to move further and further away from our leaders, right? They seem to have less ability even to do this command and control because things are kind of buffeting them from the outside. Right. And I think that for many people, this is seen as a, an example. You, you've written in places that leaders uh, run towards uncertainty and, and, and see it as a, as a, as a challenge. But Correct. I think that for a lot of people, perhaps they see this as an inevitable kind of lacking of leadership because they no longer are in that responsible role. They are no longer making the decision. Maybe that's just a fear to take on the responsibility. Maybe we're looking for somebody to tell us what to do. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the reference, but you'll forgive me for not knowing the reference. There was a discussion, maybe it was Ray Fialo? Someone brought this idea 
up that the, lo the idea of control is merely an illusion. And it's a, an illusion sponsored by um, the, the people on Wall Street who just want the numbers. Just give me the numbers and that, that's what I want. Mm. Real leadership is moving beyond just give me the numbers. It is running towards the uncertainty, searching for the new, the novel, competitive advantage, the doing what we've never done before. It is the idea of improvement, of betterment. Political leaders use it. Um, you know, if we go to Gandhi, he couldn't make the changes in society happen all by himself, but he was willing to lay down his life. I think of Martin Luther King in that same sort of way. I'm willing to give everything in order to make this happen. In America, I'm sorry to be so U.S. focused, but I've been stuck here for the last several months. The loss of someone like John Lewis, who gave, almost gave his life to achieve something larger than himself, those are the models of leadership that are both self-sacrificing and larger than self. Now, I want to go back to something you said. Yes, there are deciders who go down in history as very effective leaders because they're able to execute very well. Because, Matt, I think they're not bothered by all the noise and uncertainty around them. I don't think they take it into account. They don't care. I won't be rude and say what I really think, but they don't, they don't care. And I think these visionary change makers do care and do try to make whatever that noise is. They're not frightened by the noise. They'll run into it because they believe that followers have the capability of making sense of that noise and exploiting that noise to drive change. Yeah. And I, and I think, though, that the enemy of that is a general cynicism. So if you yeah. are cynical of somebody like John Lewis, if you're a cynical and you just say, well, what was in it for them? What was, you know, they, they all lie. You know, this level of cynicism, it's such a, the cynic looks at the command and control leader and understands him perfectly well or understands her perfectly well. Yes. Um, and that's, and that's why there is some group of followers who as society, and the societal issues become more complex. There are a variety of people that are looking for simple answers. Just give me a simple answer. That's why in your own country, when they put the, on the side of the buses, how much money was going to go to the NHS, mm. people say, oh yes, let's vote for that. That will happen. Yeah. That was a lie. Mm. Um, because it, it gave people who otherwise were were overwhelmed by the complexity of the choice, a very simple solution to a complex problem. And so they voted for it. Yeah. Well, be damned expertise. We don't need experts to tell us how complex the world is. And, and Matt, I would, as we get to issues of sustainability and environmental degradation and the issue of the haves and have nots with income uh, redistribution required and tax policy and what should we really be doing about chasing the lowest cost place for manufacture and all those sorts of things. A very thoughtful leader begins to think about what she, what he doesn't know about all those pieces and begins to try to come up with policies and a direction that addresses as many of those issues as is possible. Not assume them away by saying, I don't give a damn, this is the way we're gonna do it. Yeah, I think that that's right. Maybe we have a difference in that I'm slightly more worried about the corrosive nature of cynicism and its ability to, uh, because then the, the person who tells you the simple story and at the same time tells you it's a lie you say, I trust that person more because at least I know he's honest by telling me that it's a lie. <laughs> um, yeah, I, no, I think we are in agreement and that's what is troublesome to me. It's the degradation of, 
I think it's the degradation of the complexity in the world that we live in today. Yeah. It is a world that has more scare. While, while there's more wealth, as in monetary wealth, mm. isn't it interesting that there's more scarcity at the same time? Yeah. And, and scarcity and of all leader, kinds of different things. Yeah. Yes. And the leader who tells you, don't worry about it, gives me a simple solution. And that the rest of them are just are are just lying about it, or they're in collusion, or. Well, and in this, I mean, it leads me to something I wanted to talk about as well, because part of the situation where that thrives is situations of, of big uncertainty. And I, I wanted yeah. to say congratulations on the second edition of your and Philip Hodgins book coming out. Relax, it's only uncertainty. It's I think it's coming out at least in the UK in paperback in October. I think it just uh, it's just appearing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and we're going to talk a little bit more about the book. I th I hope at the end. But I'd like to get your take on the nature of uncertainty in our time. And so again, I apologize. I'm going to I'm going to front load this on a kind of long question, but I'm I'm asking you to to indulge in me here. So okay, all right. Let's think about the different levels of uncertainty through time. And many many people argue right now that we're living in unprecedented times of uncertainty in this VUCA world, et cetera, et cetera. But if you think back to like you know, a early hunter-gatherer, she would have faced weather, animals, diseased, hostile others, childbirth, all of which would have caused her extreme harm or death almost all of the time. And that was a pretty uncertain world. And I sometimes wonder whether are we falling prey to this idea that when, when we think, well, our time is really different this time, you know, and, and, and it's not, not the same in the, in the past. And I think sometimes it might be not really about the level of uncertainty, but maybe about the type of uncertainty. So maybe our uncertainty level isn't going up, but it's the type of uncertainty. And it's a type of uncertainty that are kind of not designed to have a good intuitive sense for. And you know you know the, the Wasson or Wason, I don't know for sure how to pronounce it, card problem. So for those, for those listeners who don't know this, you think of a table and on the table are four cards and one card is red, one card is green, one card has three on it, one card has eight. And each of the cards, they have a number on one side and a color on the other. So you have a red, green, three and eight and you're asked to turn over the cards needed to prove the statement that all even cards are green. And what Wayson found is many people turn over the green card and the eight card because they want to see that the green has an even number and that the eight is green if that makes sense. But this is wrong, okay? And, and this is seen to be a kind of idea of a confirmation bias because the statement doesn't say that all green cards are even. And the correct answer is really the red and the eight. So people get this messed up all the time. It's just a, it's a pure logic problem. They get it mixed up. They don't have any intuition for it. Right. But a couple of social cognition people, Cosmides and Tubi, they showed that if you just get the same problem and you put it into a different context in which our mind is designed to handle, then it becomes easy. So instead of cards, they say, picture four people around a table and they're all having something to drink. And one's clearly a teenager and one's clearly a senior, okay? But they're drinking from opaque glasses, so you can't see what they're drinking. And there's two other people that you're not sure how old they are. They look kind of in their 20s. And one's drinking a beer and one's drinking a soda. And what you have to do is you say, who do you have to check what they're drinking or their age to see if there's anyone under 21 drinking alcohol? Yeah. Now, using the findings from the card example, the most common answer should be you check the senior drinker and you check the beer drinker. But of course, that's clearly wrong. No one would, no one in their right mind would say, oh, I want to see what grandpa's drinking to right. see to make sure that nobody's breaking the rule. But it's just so obviously wrong that nobody picks it. And it's clear almost always must check. You have to check the, the teenager and the beer drinker, which is the correct answer. So this is all a long setup. Could it be, because here I really want to know your answer to this because you're, you, you are kind of leadership and uncertainty. In my mind, those two things are really closely connected to, to your body of knowledge. Could it be the difference in our situations, not uncertainty per se, but that we're facing these types of uncertainty that are more like the card problem than the drinking problem. We're thinking uncertainty where we don't have any intuition about how to deal with it because the underlying narrative doesn't have kind of any 
good models to go with it. And what's leadership's role there? What, what can they do to help people make these kind of choices? First, I appreciate the long setup. <laughs> Sorry about that. Second, second, I want to almost start with, I don't know. And third, I want to say, so what's intuition anyway, other than experience? But I get ahead of myself. I used to start out where you did, which is, or where I'm assuming that you've started. There's no more uncertainty today than there was a thousand years ago. It's just different. It's a different context. Isn't that really what you're saying to me? Yeah, it's a different context. And maybe the context, it's not that we have more uncertainty, but they're just contexts that we don't have kind of any natural intuition to, to deal with. We don't, we don't have any kind of so, automatic processing to deal with it. So change the, word, the term intuition as we don't have any experience to deal with. That, that, I, that I would go with. The, the thing that I'm reminded as I'm, as I'm thinking about and, and hearing what you're saying and trying to process is if I think the statistic I know I used to use is if you gave the average person in 1750 in London a copy of today's New York Times, they would, of Sunday New York Times, they would have more information in that one newspaper than they had during their entire lifetime. And so context matters, context changes. I don't really know the answer. I began a couple of years ago to begin to think about this approach to uncertainty in an almost Maslowian way that as we progress, new doors, new avenues, new windows, new something open to us so we're exposed to more, more uncertainty at a different level. More knowledge exposes more, a greater and greater uncertainty. Just like, have you noticed in particle physics and chemistry, the particles get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller because of the discoveries around them. What I would liken where we are today, at least I would like to believe, and it seems to be the case, as we progress, we become more focused on, on the discovery of issues that have an impact on us. We become more privy to other information we did not know. And as we are exposed to this information, that not knowing uh, creates a greater degree of uncertainty. It's uncertainty at a different level. I would argue when we know what to do and how to do it, that's command and control. And often we have approached the world of, uh, that we live in in a very command and control way. I know this, you know this, do it. I think in the 20th century, particularly after World War II, we begin to see more humanistic models of leaders and leadership where we begin to consult with others who may have more information than we do. In fact, many of the Western European, the, the whole democracy movement in the 60s and 70s, I'm thinking the professors in Germany and the, and the UK and France and other places, Italy, the whole idea of participation and empowerment is really about the, the idea of, of finding the highest quality solutions with the greatest amount of acceptance by followers. Read that other people in society or the organization or what have you in the shortest amount of time. It's the let's all be involved and we begin to see what many of us in the leadership world called the soft skills models of leadership, exchange theory, the idea of uh, listening and motivating others and the real movement towards uh, workers aren't pawns, they're not robotic, they're, they're human beings with needs and feelings. And, and now as we've moved to the latter half of the 20th century and certainly in the 21st century, we begin to see leaders and followers at times it's hard to separate leaders and followers 
because the leader doesn't know the answer, nor do followers. The leader often has resources that followers don't have that she can, can commit towards the solution or the exploration. Let me not get to solution, toward the exploration of a problem. And leaders become critically important in the ability to mobilize those resources for good or for ill, for in this case, for good, to solve problems. And those problems, given context, are much more sophisticated than they were in the hunter-gatherer society. Now, I don't know, what's your reaction to that? I think that that's almost certainly true. I guess I wonder though sometimes, let me go to something that you wrote, and because I, I love this conception, and I, I absolutely think this is a great quote. You said, well-developed uh, leaders are piqued by not knowing and motivated by the challenge to find out. They enjoy learning and they don't mind mistakes as long as the mistakes are the kind where we learn and grow and ultimately leapfrog us forward to a viable solution. Right. Which is, which is great, which is, uh, I mean, the, if I was going to pick a, a quote that would say, what would be a Randy quote? That would be like my, one of my top Randy quotes. Okay. But I sometimes feel like, yeah, okay, leaders get to that point. And I sometimes feel that they have, they're kind of forced into a trap where they have to get their followers to go along. And they have to do that. They have to either tell some sort of simplified story, which underplays the uncertainty, ambiguity, and feeling of kind of flying blind, or they're perceived as a weak leader, or if they're not a weak leader, they leave space for somebody else to come in and tell a more simple and therefore compelling story. So, so think of COVID-19, right? I mean, our knowledge here is keeps on evolving. And in order to get people to do the things we need them to do, political leaders have to sound certain about what's needed, or at least that they perceive that they have to sound certain. But by creating a kind of false sense of certainty, whenever inevitably the knowledge changes and we have to realign our behavior to fit the new information, confidence in the leadership declines because we say, well, wait a minute, you told us first not to wear masks. Now you're telling us to wear masks. First, you told me that this wasn't okay. And now you're telling me this is okay. And let's assume that it's just a completely transparent, honest leader who's responding to the, the information as it comes into her. Right. Because that, they, that was, is going to require them to change resistance, they come across as uncertain about what's the right thing to do or not. This creates kind of a perception of lack of direction. And uh, this is where I think it's most dangerous. It creates this wonderful space for people with less ambiguous messaging to take over. You're, so, you're right. I, I like your characterization. It's a, a wimpy or a wishy-washy leader, or could we call a weak leader? You weren't you weren't you weren't strong in your you, you're giving us different messages, you're confusing us um and, and in uncertain situations they have if they're transparent and honest they have to say well we're not sure this yeah. might be the right thing to do and we're going to try it but who knows and and this is why on a more microscopic level and an organizational level or particularly in a startup with an entrepreneur yeah you can have i i have a client we're going to call him howard who says, I don't care if you fail, I want you to fail fast and fail forward. We've been writing about some of Howard's ideas for a long time. We've been teased about it. Um, I, I, there's one um, fast company thought we were crazy to say, oh, who would fail fast and fail forward? That's stupid advice. It's not stupid advice when you look backwards at how organizations have in fact leapfrogged others and gone where no one else has gone. They've often mm. failed fast and they've failed forward, they've been able to skip steps, they've learned from one another. Now the fascinating thing, Matt, can this only happen on a, a, a more localized level? I want you to think where I have a small organization where the leader can really be known, where we can really invest in her, we really believe in her, she's done this. How scalable is this, is what you're asking to a Fauci, to a, a, a health minister, to a, how scalable is that? And I think this is where we're being challenged right now because there are the people who, for any number of reasons, want to doubt 
science or want to doubt expertise. There is a real attack right now on the role of experts in society. And I know this isn't a podcast on expertise in society, but, but, but this is an important piece. I'm thinking about it a lot. I keep thinking about the original text, um, Small is Beautiful, it's a wonderful little book. Um, the idea, is there, a is there a limit to the size of organization or the size of the, the unit that a leader leads because of this necessity to establish trust and respect and those sorts of things? Can one do that at a, at a, at a, a much grander level, at a big scalable level? I don't know because you have just, you documented very well exactly what's happened where a very competent leader says, okay, we, we've taken a look and we've, we've consulted with experts and we're dealing in an unknown and this is the, we think right now this is the best way to go. Although you will notice some of our colleagues haven't actually said we know right now this, they'll just say this is the way to go. Maybe we need to be prefacing more right now. This is our best belief, our best thinking, and it is subject to change. But what's happening is people aren't allowing those people to change. They are seeing them as weak leaders mm -hmm. or as confusing leaders. And you are right. Someone with a simple, because one of the other, one of the other messages we've written about is simplicity. Those leaders who have a simple message in complexity and um, can communicate it well are the ones then that undercut these leaders and say, whoa, 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 wait, it's, it's, it's more complex than that and it's confusing and it depends. And Yeah, so, and then they so say, we, you're just hedging your bets. Come on, make a decision. But I love your idea, Randy, about scalability. I, I hadn't thought about that. And it makes me think there's a, a, a wonderful book called... Um, a loon shot, which is about entrepreneurship and innovation, et cetera. But they kind of come to the same solution that, or same, at least they, they, he talks about, I, I can't remember the name of the author right now. Uh, we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but they talk about how any organization after about 150, and there seems to be this magic number of 150, right? And uh, after that, the organization starts to change in a kind of fundamental way. So maybe, I hadn't thought about this, but may, maybe it is this smaller group and then you have to kind of think about how to roll it out across a bigger audience. I, I'm just not sure. Organizationally, we used to talk about this a lot 25 years ago and we sort of lost the thread. Even, um, you know, the notion of uh, evolution and revolution and organizational life, um, the peace and organizational dynamics. And we've lost that discussion about the scalability feature of trust and respect. And, and I'm, I keep wondering, is that an interest, is that an important dimension when we're teaching leadership that we need to begin or go back to, not begin, go back to some of this work and figure out how much of this glue, how much of this stuff um, is, is scalable or needs some additional work so that it is scalable. I do not know, but the phenomenon you're talking about, we've all seen, um, you're absolutely right. The criticism is well taken. And it's a problem because a competent leader dealing in a VUCA world, you know, volatile, uncertain, chaotic, ambiguous, a term taken from the military, but uh, in this, in this ever-changing world, a leader has to be able to, I don't want to call it hedging her bets, has to be able to say, we got this piece wrong or time out. This, this didn't work. What did we just learn from it? How can we skip that step because we learned and move forward and still have followers say, good move. I believe in you. Yes, let's do that. Versus you're wrong. And this person over here is giving us a, a very clear direction and says he or she knows what to do. Um, yeah. That's a problem. And that's attention. And even if there's not that external person, which is, I think, often a real danger, 
It would seem to me, I've, I've spoken to some leaders uh, recently about, you know, making decisions now, business decisions that they have to make CapEx investments that are going to be only kind of coming to fruition over the next three to five years. And uh, who knows what three or five years is going to look like from now. And they're, they, they're facing this kind of trade-off between sounding like they have a really good idea what the world's going to look like in three years. And this is why we're making these choices. And this is why we're putting these uh, investments here. And this is why we're letting 30% of our people go. This is why, you know, a justification for super hard decisions. And they kind of, it seems to me that they see this trade-off between being transparent about their own uncertainty and having at some point to say, but I have to sound a certain level of, in order to get the confidence of the people that I'm leading, they have to, they have to think that I know what I'm doing. They have to think uh, that I know where I'm going. Guess what? And there's the, therein lies the scalability problem. If I only have to convince five, it's a lot easier than if I have mm. to convince 50 yeah, or 500 or 5,000. Yeah. Because up to a certain point, people can have knowledge and experience of me to know what my values are, to know what I stand for, to know what I'm like. Which is why I think, Matt, sometimes we're, the, the, remember the leaders we started with who are head and shoulders above all of us? We, Six Sigma out, we point to them because they've been so remarkable, we're willing to follow them. And so what organizations are looking for is find me one like that, that we'll all get behind and follow them. Exactly. But they're, they're generational. They don't, we have too many leadership positions to have that many of them. Yeah. They're generational. They have a gift, just like Rafa playing tennis has a gift. Yeah. Just like, you know, with pick somebody from music, Isaac Perlman, I, whoever, they have a gift. And, and, and we can, maybe the, the best we can do is people like you and I can help people join the symphony, right? They can be right. second chair or they could be, well, you know, what, whatever the analogy is, yeah. but to say that we're going to create it's like Perlman, or we're going to create the next wonderful whatever it is, the one that's the Six Sigma out, somehow that, 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 that we're going to be able to uncover that and we can all become that. Maybe that's the difference that we're talking about and that we use the wrong scale, that what we're yeah. really looking about is we're successful if people join the symphony, not if they don't become Rafa, that there's certain people, certain gifts of leadership. That, that we use as models to inspire us as these high water, high water marks, but we we really fall down if we say that's what we want everybody to be because everybody can't be that. At the same time, I, I agree. I, well, first, I agree with what you just said. At the same time, I believe from people who are Six Sigma out, we can learn some important yeah, lessons. Absolutely. And, and a lot of times people will use those folks to try to say, well, what about, what about? And I'll go, that's a unique story and we can learn some things from it, but I don't think most of us will become that. Yeah. I yeah. think that's a, the exception, not the rule, but we could learn some things yeah. about how to greet uncertainty or how to learn from failure or some of these things that we're grappling with. And that's Matt, where I, if we connect back to how's this different than when we're hunter or gatherers, the problems have become more complex, or at least we've allowed the greater complexity to enter our brain. Mm. And in dealing with that complexity, we have to up our game in order to deal with those yeah. things. Well, I wanna move because I wanna spend some time a little bit on, on your book. So first of all, the new edition, I'd really uh, recommend this book. It's really fascinating. I love the list of uh, enablers and restrainers to help people kind of relax and thrive in situations of uncertainty. I love the focus on behavior. And I'm just wondering, as we kind of enter this COVID-19 pandemic and all the uncertainty around, is there any of these enablers or restrainers that you would emphasize any more or less than others during this time? Um, I think... The one that I find absolutely marvelous is the piece on flexibility. 
both the ability to admit that you're wrong and to laugh a little bit at yourself, to have humor. And as I'm, I'm reading now for myself, I think there's a streak of humility in this flexibility. And then the other piece of that set of behaviors is the ability to sell change to people whose initial self-interest is against the change, to work, to cajole others, to see the utility of moving forward. Mm. I think this ability to be flexible, which is a hard sell to a hard driving, hard charging leader. My way, we're gonna do that. No, 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 no. Let's figure out how to be flexible. How do you make a good connection with these people to help them understand where we need to 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 go. I think that's a really important piece. One of the other pieces that I think that is really critically important, because a couple of the things, Matt, if you look at them like um, being determined, um, um, never giving up, those sorts of characteristics that are, that are behaviors that we talk about, I think those go without saying. Yeah. But I think the other thing right now is to really learn how to communicate the essence of an idea in brief, short periods, because I think our attention span with so many things coming at us mm. is very short. Yep. And I think even people who say, I have trouble with that, I think we all would do well to experiment, myself included, with what's, how can I get to the essence of an idea very quickly and capture somebody's interest? I think those two of the many that we talk about are critically important. Yeah. And I've I singularly failed with, with that on my very long question. So I apologize. <laughs> no, no, you didn't. You, you, got to the es- you got to the essence of it because that, that is a, 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 an interesting piece. How do we communicate to one another the complexity that we live in? Hmm. It's a, it's a complex world. And it, it does bother me that sometimes the person who is just able to be simple, but if they're simple and they, and they don't communicate that they understand the complexity, that's a problem. Yeah. I used to think, and I still think, that a super important job for a leader is to be a storyteller, right? To, to create yeah. narratives. Yeah. And, and the, I also now am beginning to think maybe that's not the right... I mean, it's a good way to think about it, and I think you can get a lot of traction there. But I think what you're talking about is maybe a leader also has to be a poet in that they have to be able to use language very carefully with a few words and communicate complexity in a way that doesn't overly simplify the situation, but also doesn't leave people with, you know, a 48 minute lecture on one topic that they aren't going to listen to anyway. So maybe it's that, that ability to capture someone capture the essence of something in a, in a very concise way, uh, which is fantastic and, and not something traditionally that professors have been very good at. <laughs> right. We're, we're into essence detection. Yeah. If, I'm, if I might quickly, before you cut me off, um, Seligman, Seligman's work on optimism, I think, is critically important, and I think it underlies some of what we're talking about. I just want to get that in. Okay. And the last thing, <clears throat> just like I'm doing a lot of thinking in my home office about humility, I am also thinking more and more about the quality of a leader's empathy. And again, I'm being influenced by the cultural situation that I'm in, the notion of empathy, to be able to walk a mile in someone else's shoes, which builds a bond of trust so that when my leader tells me that this is the best option or uh, after consideration, these are the trade-offs and this is what needs to happen. If that leader is empathetic, I'm more likely to trust what they're doing. I think empathy could be a key to this problem of scalability of trust. Oh, interesting. Yeah, really good. I, I think that that's, a, that's fascinating. I, I think you might be right. I, that just feels right to me. Anyway, I just want to, the, the last couple of things I want to mention, I love this idea that you have about the ambiguity architect. It's a, it's a, yes. a diagnostic and yes. uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that is. And, and because I think the findings that you have, the empirical findings <laughs> on, uh, on high potentials and, and on this ambiguity architecture 
is really interesting. So can you tell us something so, about that? So we, Matt, we constructed from the research, both in the book, Relax, It's Only Uncertainty, and a book years ago called The Future of Leadership. Um, we constructed the same concepts that are in the book. We sought to measure them with, with an instrument that you could give to your boss, your peers, your subordinates, people around you, and get a readout about um, how well you're motivated by what you don't know and how focused you are and how, how much of a simplifier you are and all these various characteristics. And what we found is that no one has it all, but the more of these characteristics that one possesses at the time of measurement, the greater the likelihood they are not overly bothered by dealing with uncertainty. They're comfortable when there are multiple uh, possibilities. They find it fun. They find it something to run toward. We also noted that people can learn some of these behaviors, some of these characteristics, and actually improve themselves along some of these lines. And we find a, a, a correlation between, not a, not a cause and effect, but a correlation with those who are identified as highest potential and some of the higher scores on these scales. So I don't want to lead you to believe, oh, well, that causes. No. It's certainly a high correlation, which would lead us to argue the greater the comfort, the greater the degree of likelihood that a leader might be more successful or effective. Well, and, and I think that, that that link creates all kinds of other hypotheses that are super interesting. So it may be yeah. that this, this tolerance for ambiguity also, I would assume, is related to being drawn to it as a puzzle to be solved et cetera, et cetera. So I, I just think it's a fantastic tool. Um, uh, and, uh, and I wanted to congratulate you on developing such a wonderful diagnostic. And for those of you interested in, in looking at some cutting edge stuff, the ambiguity architect, I think is just great. And uh, along with the book. So I'll get you out of here on just one final question. I asked each of my uh, victims uh, slash guests so far. Um, have you read, seen, or listened to anything lately that's influenced you or that you would recommend to our audience? It doesn't have to be nonfiction. It could be fiction. It could be any kind of, of all the things fighting for attention. Is there something that you've uh, read, seen, or listened to lately that you enjoyed and you recommend? I, I knew you were going to ask me that. And I've been doing a lot of article, besides being a reviewer for different academic journals, I've been reading a lot of different articles and things versus necessarily a book uh, of this and that sort of book. And I'm telling you, the thing that I'm very influenced by right now is sort of anything around the idea of humility and leadership. So, you know, the humble CEOs matter, an examination of CEO humility and firm outcomes it's from the Journal of Management, March 2018. And I am really doing some thinking about not weak leaders, but leaders who are more vulnerable, who are more accessible. And it's become something that I'm fascinated by. My favorite things to read right now are The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The New Yorker. I am not kidding. And I'm getting far more out of those things right now than I am out of a particular long treatise because we're talking about issues all around leaders and leadership and what's going on at a societal level. Mm. And that's what's having an impact on me right now. Well, fantastic. I, I mean, I, I want to tell you that I have always been uh, super impressed by your kind of towering intellect. And I, and I think that what's interesting here is that what you've ended on is a topic about being humble. Uh, you have this amazing combination of this superpowered brain and a really humble way of approaching it. And I find that really refreshing and, and it's shown through in this talk. And so I want to thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Matt. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. 
I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best. 